Edge of Sports is brought to you by FreshBooks. It's smart mobile accounting designed specifically for freelancers and small business owners. You can try FreshBooks for 30 days on us with no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com edge and enter edge in the how you heard about us section. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have a historic show this week. A live discussion in front of 500 people at Cal State East Bay in Hayward, California, sponsored by their Center for Sports and Social Justice. And the conversation is with two legends, one who is an icon of sports and social justice and one who, because of issues of gender and race, should be an icon of sports and social justice, but is not. I'm talking about 1968 Olympians John Carlos and Wyoming Atias. It was for human rights that I'm still a part of you. I still believe in what's going on, what you believe in, and what we need to do, what we need to do, come together. Every one of you are going to be at the crossroads of your life. The question is whether you have the gumption in you to do the right thing. John Carlos is, of course, an icon. It was he who, in that year of social tumult, of Vietnam and the Panthers and the assassination of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy and the massacre of Mexican students in Tlatelolco Square, stood with his fist raised on the metal stand in Mexico City. And then there is Wyoming Atias, who stood in solidarity with their actions, holding up her medals and representing her relay team and saying to the press, we dedicate the gold to John Carlos and Tommy Smith even though the movement of Olympic athletes made no effort to include women. But just a little more about both of these individuals in case there's anybody out there listening who does not know the magnitude of what you're about to hear. John Carlos is one of the great track athletes of his time, setting a world record in the 100-yard dash, running it in an astonishing nine seconds, and leading San Jose State, a.k.a. Speed City, to the 1969 NCAA Championships. He is a member of the USA Track and Field Hall of Fame, and along with myself wrote a memoir, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World, which was nominated for an NAACP Image Award. Now, Wyoming Atias... And I'm so excited about this. I I can't even tell you. She was the first person to ever win the 100-meter gold in consecutive Olympics in 1964 and 1968. She was part of the legendary crew of women who ran at Tennessee State, known as the Tiger Bells. She is a founding member of the Women's Sports Foundation, a member of the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame, the National Track and Field Hall of Fame, and the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. She also never does interviews. So just hearing her voice is something very special and very unique. As for this interview, people can hear and see the entirety of it with a fascinating Q&A from the audience with video at edgeofsportspodcast.com. And there is a link for that in the description of this podcast, as well as links to learn more about the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State East Bay. It is my honor to introduce to you Dr. John Carlos. I grew up in concrete jungle. I grew up in uh, Harlem, New York. I guess you could say I was a thug through the sense of Robin Hood. Uh, I had athletic ability as a boxer because I could deal with anybody in the neighborhood. Uh, But my first passion for athletics was swimming. I was a very good swimmer. I wanted to uh, first swim the English Channel. Then I heard about the Olympics on TV, and I asked my father, I said, Pop, they ever had a black swimmer represent America? He said, no. I said, I'm going to be the first. Why did I say I wouldn't be the first? Because I was the best bathtub swimmer in Harlem. (laughs) No doubt. And uh, then I heard on the radio they started talking about the Olympic Games. Hey, Pop, what's the Olympic Games? He said, well, that's where they bring the greatest athletes together from around the world, uh, physically and mentally, to see who's the strongest nation. I said, well, they ever had a black swimmer represent America? He said, no. Yeah, I'm going to be the first, Pop. And then one day my father told me, he said, Johnny, you, you're not going to make it as a swimmer. And he educated me about the race car. Just merely because of the color of my skin, I couldn't fulfill the dream. And uh, he said, are you going to quit? I said, no, I'll find another way. 
So when I got involved in track and field, I got backed in because as I stated, I was the Robin Hood of New York. Uh, it was a lot of drugs that was dropped on the community. It was a lot of parents that fathers left the household based on the drugs. And here we are 60 years later, and a lot of them still haven't returned. So many individuals was not as fortunate as, as me and my, my brothers and sister for the mere fact that we had a mother and father. Uh, go to my friend's house, a lot of them didn't have food in the icebox, they didn't have clothes in the closet. And I remember Robin Hood used to check out everybody coming through Nottingham Forest. So when the trains came through the Yankee Stadium area, that was my Nottingham Forest. <laughs> he would make them pay a tariff, I would make them pay a tariff in Harlem. Well, as my activity began to take place, it was two detectives, Mr. Lester and Mr. Bryant. Mr. Lester was about maybe six feet, five, ten, somewhere around there, and Mr. Bryant was like six, eight. And they knew my father very well, and they said, my father, Earl, uh, there's been some break-ins at the freight yards, and we think Johnny, and you need to tell him. My father stopped him. Well, that's your job. You need to tell him. And when they built the new Yankee Stadium, that's where the track was, at McCoon's Park. And I was over there with a few partners of mine, and they came with the police cars and circled the whole park, make sure we couldn't get out. And they caught up with me, and they, they walked me into the inside of the track and stood there. And Mr. Bryant, the big guy, he says, uh, Mr. Lester, I have something to tell you. And I said, yeah, what's that? He said, there's been some break-ins. We have a good idea of who's doing it. We can't do anything until we catch him. And then he leaned his nose dead up against my nose and pushed me and said, and we're going to catch him. <laughs> In the meantime, you better slow your rope. And Mr. Bryant said, tell me another thing. Tell me another thing. And I said, uh, yes. He said, well, you have a talent. And I looked at him, well, what, what talent do I have? He said, you're a runner. And when he said that, I smirked. <laughs> and Mr. Bryant smacked me on this side of my face, and his fingers landed over here. I see stars right now thinking about it. He said, don't you ever disrespect Mr. Lester. I said, I'm not disrespecting Mr. Lester. Everyone in my neighborhood could run. And specifically, I was thinking about my mom because my mom was a nurse and she had taken a job working at Bellevue Hospital at night. She was leaving between 10, 30, and 11 o'clock. She went out this particular night and she came back about maybe 30 minutes later with her legs all scarred up, bleeding, and her stockings all torn up. And my father was upset, me and my brothers was upset, and we asked him, what happened? Someone snatched her purse and drug her. So we are quite naturally was upset. And my mother said, oh, I'm okay, just put some cure comb on, I'll be all right. And my father said, nah, we're going to find him. And my mother said, that's not necessary. And then she held up her purse. I got my purse back. <laughs> so I, my father said, he said, well, Bob, how you get your purse back? She said, he started running, I ran him down. <laughs> so I'm telling Mr. Bryant, Mr. Lester, that everybody can run. He said, no, you're special. And from that point on, they gave me a number to the New York Pioneer Club. I got involved in running track. I didn't even like track. But you know, when you get involved in something, you got to find out what your niche is. You know, why, why am I in the track? What do I want out of track? And as I began to run and realized that I didn't like training, I was running more on my natural ability. I began to realize that I can run, but I can't go the distance until I create a foundation. So I started to train. And when I started to train, I realized I started to beating people. Now, when you beat people, you still say, well, I have this talent. What can I do with it? And then I began to realize that I need a means for me to go train. And then I realized that the things that my father told me about race relations and so forth, only way I could really deal with that situation is to perfect my game of track and field, become the best that I can possibly be. Because when you become a superstar, people have a tendency to listen to what you say. So I use my athleticism as a springboard to deal with social issues. Mm -hmm. And that's my action mm -hmm. in track. Now, you were both part of legendary track programs, arguably the two most legendary track programs in the history of the United States. Uh, they have resonance for people on 
on athletic grounds and on political grounds. And I was hoping each of you could maybe educate the audience about what that track program was all about, who came out of it, and what they accomplished. And I want to start, start with you, Ms. Tyus. I mean, you mentioned it, but the Tennessee State uh, Tiger Bells, I mean, this was such an exquisitely special group of female athletes. Can you speak a little bit about who they were, what they accomplished, and what made them so special? They were all good, but no, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, what made them special, I think, was Coach Temple. Uh, Coach Temple had, you think about it, we were talking about the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, when women's, especially the 50s and the 60s, women's sport was not as it is today. We were not asked to go to do all these things. Coach Temple had a goal. He had a feel for what women, what athletes could do. And he started this program at Tennessee State. And like I said, I used to go there when I was 14 and 15. And once I graduated from um, high school, I went there for, for college. But we used to go there in the summer, and you would think parents would let their young daughters go to a college campus with a coach, a male coach, and they felt fine about it. That's because he went to every young girl's home talked to their parents and, and gave them his rules. My rules are these. If they don't follow my rules, I will send them home. And they will go home, come home on that train, and I will give them a comic book and an apple so they will have something to read and something to eat on their way home. So he always wanted to, us to be that way. And he was very strict in everything. And I think that's why we had so many hard practices. Because once you came off the track uh, every day, at the, you know, we come off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All you could do is get to the room, take a shower, and lay down. And go to have, <laughs> have dinner and come back and lay down because you know you had to be at practice at 5 o'clock in the morning. So we trained a lot. It was a little bit hard for me and for well, everybody. There were some of us that didn't make it. But my goal was I could get this education and I could maybe go to the Olympic Games. So that's what, you know, and that's what I trained for. And also, he, his main rule was that you had to get an education. You had to have, come in with a 2.5 or better. And he wanted you to have much better than a 2.5 going into, coming into college. And you had to maintain that, because he felt that there were gonna be times you may have, you're gonna travel a lot, in one of your semesters, uh, uh, and you may not be able to keep up with your grades. You may fall down in one of them or whatever. So you must have a bumper. So he always made sure our grades were always up to the hilt, and we always had to work very hard to do that. The Tiger Bells was like, it was a family. That's all I can say, it was a big family. And he had his young ones, he, he had his older ones, and his older girls were supposed to teach the younger girls, teach them about etiquette, teach them about life and being on a college campus and how it is to be a Tiger Bell, what it is to be a Tiger Bell. And there's always, there's a song we used to sing all the time that it's so hard to be a Tiger Bell. Not, <laughs> it, it was not just on the track, but also off the track. It was so hard. And Mr. Temple's thing was, you always have to be a lady's first. You have to do that. And people go, a lady's first? You don't have to do that. I said, in this day and time. At the time, we were competing, yes. People looked at you a lot differently. And it was like, oh, well, you look, you know, before we would go to an interview or anything, he would say, well, you have to get yourself together. And that meant that you had to go to the bathroom, comb your hair, look, make, look, make yourself look presentable. That's what he said, because he didn't want you out there having an interview and your hair all over the place. And people go, well, they should have won. They scared everybody. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so these were those are little things as boys being a Tiger Bell. But here's a man that has put 40 women on the Olympic team, and in these 40 women that he's put on the Olympic team, all 40 of these women have graduated with a degree from Tennessee State. Is he? They've had. Thank you. And in putting these 40 women on this team, he has won 23 medals, 13 of them gold. All right. So you're and, and, and just, just so people know, how big was Tennessee State? Very small. I think when I was in school, we may have had 2,000 or maybe 2,500. Think about that for a second. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. So it was very small school when I first started. Of course, it grew and it has grown since then. But you're talking about a very small school, and you think about it. If you think about all the colleges and universities throughout the world, I'm not just talking about the U.S. You cannot find anybody that has done anything like that. Coach Temple, to me and to many others. I mean, he has never got his due, he's never got his honors, because it's just, it's no way you're thinking about, he put this, you had a Wilma Rudolph with three gold medals, you know, and then after that, it was myself, Edith McGuire Duvall, who's in the audience somewhere. Well, where is she? Yeah, where's Edith, where's Edith? Where is she? Can you stand up, can you stand up? Hey, there she is. All right. Oh. Uh, Edith and I, Edith went to Tennessee State that one summer, a uh, summer before me, but we met when I was, we were 15 or so, and we have been best friends ever since, and we talk to each other every day. <laughs> um, uh, and for those of you who don't, Edith won, got second to me in the 100, sorry Edith, but... <laughs> <laughs> She got second to me in the 100, and uh, a quick story, kind of off the story, but they had dubbed Edie to win three gold medals, as Wilma had done in 1960, and that came along to kind of mess that up. But uh, we, were, uh, we won 100, I came first and she came second, and Mr. Temple was so thrilled. He said, I was just through with the Olympics. I got two people, they won 100. They got first and second in 100. So, uh, Coach Temple would all, he came up and talked to Edith, I remember for before the 200, and he was talking to her, and he, I think Edie told him, Mr. Temple, I'm going to win the 100, I mean the 200. Something is very out of character for her, but she did, and she went on to win the 200, and uh, he was too elated by that. And then we, our relay team took second, which we should have get, we should have a gold medal, but they're not giving it to us. I'm gonna get Dave on it. <laughs> <laughs> to, to do list. Here we go. Yes, to do list. But uh, this man has done so many great things, and mm. as far as uh, track and field is concerned, and for as women are concerned, and to take a group of black women and accomplish all the things he has accomplished, and to have all 40 of his Olympians finish college with a degree. It's amazing. And we're not even, there are also athletes that were, did not go to the Olympics that have graduated. I can't give you the stats on that because that's too long. But uh, mm -hmm. that did not go, but still got a degree from Tennessee State. And he has always been, for some of us, a father figure, for others, just a coach, but a great coach. And I just think if you could just see some footage or even have, he's never gonna be on a stage, you know, he doesn't speak in the audience anymore, but if you could get to meet him, you could see what a great man he is and what great people he has put out in the world, great women that are doing a lot of things that never get talked about. Mm. Wow. Mm. Nice. Still with us at 89 years young, right? Yes, and That's still amazing. very good, with very quick to mind, a little bit quicker than me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's one program that can even be talked about in the same breath as Tennessee State, of course, it's Speed City, San Jose State. Uh, which, uh, if, it's, if, I, if I agree with you on that, I would be telling a fib. <laughs> Let me just start by saying, you know, why am I negated to tell you that with the greatness of Tennessee State, they won more medals than most countries did in the Olympic Games. That little small school that she's talking about won more medals than most countries that participated in the Games. So that just gives you an idea of really how great this individual was before Title IX, before the money started flowing. Tremendous feat. Now let's talk about San Jose State. <laughs> now we got the San Jose State there here was Individuals prior to us, like the great Bobby Pointer that's in the audience tonight with his wife. Could you stand up, Bobby? People can see you. And then 
when I came on the scene, I, I came down to San Jose. I was left New York and came out to California with uh, Bob Beeman. Everyone remember Bob from the 29 foot long jump? Then we had Vincent Matthews that was on the 68 team in the 1600 meter relay and came back in 72 and won the gold money in the 400 meters. Then we had another young kid named McCullough, high jumper, seven feet high school high jumper. And then we come out to San Jose to visit a guy from Southern University by the name of George Anderson. We came out to the track and we see this string bean. When I say string bean, this guy was like the, the the guy that would draw the picture of the circle and the two lines for the arms and the leg, is a string bean. And he's on the track with his coach, and we see a guy, he's setting up his camera, his camcorder, and so forth. So we went over to the track, and we said to the coach, say, say coach, he didn't know who we were. Said, uh, is it possible that uh, we can run some of these turns with your guys? Well, this guy was one of the greatest sprinters in the history of sprints. I didn't know it. My and Padre was with me, he didn't know it. So he said, oh sure, come on, because he figured we gonna make this guy look good, he's gonna whip us up. Well, we run the turn, maybe 60 meters on the turn, and we steady spanking him, pop, pop. So coach said, okay, that's enough. <laughs> in the meantime, while we were doing this, it was another fella sitting in the stands. And he comes over excited, I mean, this guy was excited. He struts over there, who are you guys, who are you guys? And more particularly, he wanted to know, who am I? So I tell him, where are you from? I say, uh, I'm from New York. He said, New York. He said, man, you're the missing link. You're the missing link. And I'm looking at him like, is this guy crazy? What do you mean I'm the missing link? <laughs> he said, we need you here in San Jose. I was going to school at East Texas State University. So I said to him, I said, all right, man, well, I'll tell you what, man, we're here for the national. We just wanted to come around. And not until after I talked to this man did I realize that that was the great Tommy Smith that we were running against on the turn. So then we went on and we went to the Nationals and then Bob won a medal, I won a medal, Vincent Matthews won a medal, we went back to New York. And I think I took fourth in the 100 and third in the 200. I haven't been accustomed to getting beat. When I went back to New York, I had my head down in shame and one of my buddies told me, he said, John, he said, man, don't be ashamed of the fact that those guys beat you. He said, man, what you ran, most guys can't run on a bicycle going downhill. <laughs> be excited about what you did. So then when I got back to San Jose after I left East Texas State about eight months later, I ran into another guy, probably the guy that was there that made the course of history in which took place in 68. My brother, my friend, my competitor that came on the team, he was out of Berkeley, Berkeley High, the Berkeley Flash, that's what they call him. And uh, this same fella that had talked to me about I'm the, I'm the missing link, he knew about his history because he went to the same school, I believe, and he went and found this guy, he's a pool hustler, and made him put down the pool game and get back involved in track and field. And his brother is Jerry Williams. We was called the wild bunch in certain circles. They had the title based on Bobby Pointer and Ray Norton and those guys that call it Speed City. This young fella that came to me talking about I was a missing link, he had a vision like Abe Saperstein to put this team of Speed the, City the back together. The founder of the Harlem Globetrotters. Yes, the, right. Abe yeah. Saperstein is the founder of the, of the Harlem Globetrotters and this guy's name was Art Sinberg. He had a vision like Abe. So he put us all together. And I remember when I came to San Jose the first time and I looked at Tommy Smith, I looked at Lee Evans. Lee Evans, the 400 meter, 1600 meter gold medal winner. Ronnie Ray Smith out of Los Angeles, one by four by one relay. Uh, we had Kurt Clayton. And incidentally, all of these guys was capable of running 9-3 or better, which would have made most nations, they would have been the number one runner in the country. They talk about how great we were. We were great, but we weren't nowhere near as close to greatness as these guys here, this, this lady and her team, okay? Bar none, okay? Yeah, we did our thing and everybody held, you know, San Jose stay high, Speed City, yeah, they, they, they the bomb. But in my heart, I know they was the bomb. Mm. 
okay, because they had far less to work with than us and they proved to be better than, far better than us. But we were so wild in our annex because everyone was against us just based on the way we carried ourselves. But we was determined. I told the coach when I went there, I said, coach, I said, I've always been a good runner. I said, but I respect you, I admire you, and I appreciate you, and I owe you for the fact that not that you teach me how to run faster, but you taught me how to run more relaxed. I owe you for that. Oh, and incidentally, coach, I won't run no more in one year for you. Why would you say you would run for him for one year? I was married. I had a kid. I couldn't make no money running for the school. I had to feed my family. So I told the coach, say, coach, I'm, I'm gone after this year. But I said, I'm going to do one thing for you. Because with Bobby and Ray and all the guys they had, I was a little disappointed with the great talent that Bud had that he never was able to pull the strings together with those guys to win the NC2A championship. So I told Bud on my way out, that's my gift to you. I guarantee you that I will win the NC2A. I bought it home too. Much more to come from John Carlos and Wyoming Atias, but first, a quick word from FreshBooks. Tax time is the 99th layer of hell for me. I freelance a ton, I get royalty checks that sometimes reach as high as two figures, and that's why I am legit grateful that through this show, I found FreshBooks. For the best way to manage your books and make tax season easy, get FreshBooks, a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices extremely simple for freelancers like me and small business owners. FreshBooks stands out where it really counts, getting you paid. You can create and send professional invoices in just 30 seconds. You'll see exactly when your client looked at the invoice you've emailed, tracking the status of all your outstanding invoices. FreshBooks can even send late payment reminders to your clients automatically, which means you're not wasting time chasing down and fighting clients for payment, which really sucks. The results speak for themselves. FreshBooks users get paid five days faster on average. Don't take my word for it. Right now, FreshBooks is offering Edge of Sports listeners 30 days of unrestricted use, totally free, and you don't need a credit card to sign up. Just go to freshbooks.com slash edge and enter edge in the how you heard about us section. You'll thank me in the morning. And now back to Wyoming Atias and John Carlos. Mexico City, of course, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, they raise their black love fists to the heavens in the name of human rights and social justice. They're not wearing shoes to protest poverty in the United States. They're wearing beads and scarves around their necks to call to the history of lynching in the United States. They're wearing buttons that say Olympic Project for Human Rights. It is this historic moment. It is this beautiful moment. But it's more than a moment. It's a movement called the Olympic Project for Human Rights that had been organizing for several years before John Carlos came on the scene. Now, in those several years, they did amazing things. But one thing that they did also was that they did not actively try to organize women who were part of track and field. Black women, white women, and in particular, you have this incredible crop of runners at Tennessee State who are tearing up the world, and there's no effort to reach them and say, be part of our struggle. Now, after John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fist and the uproar started and they were They left Mexico City. The lies were told that they were kicked out of the country and all kinds of things. When after all this happened, Wyoming Atiyah, she anchors the 4x100 women's gold medal relay team. And then in front of the world, she holds up her medal and she says, I'm dedicating this to John Carlos and Tommy Smith. And it was an incredible act of courage. But you also, you stood in solidarity with a demonstration that was also excluding you. So why did you make that choice in Mexico City to say, I stand with John Carlos and Tommy Smith? Well, it was for human rights, and that's what we were talking about. And I was part of the human rights, although I was not included, that lets you know right there, they were not including women in the beginning. And for me to dedicate my medal to them, that lets the world know, and also everybody, and them too, that I'm still a part of you. I still believe in what's going on, what you believe in, and what we need to do, what we need to do, come together. 
because that's how we do it. You have to do it together. You can't do it separately. We all have to be on pretty, not always the same page, but we have to be focused on where we're going and which way we're going. And also, you have to think about the fact that we were in Tennessee and they were in California. And when you think about that, then there is a big gap there. I mean, I can remember back when uh, the reporters would call Coach Temple and ask him all the time, could we speak to Wyoming? Could we talk to somebody on the, one of the Tiger Bells about, because this has just been said at San Jose State, whether Carlos said it or Tommy said it or what's this, Harry Erwitz said it, and how do they feel about it? Are they going to do this? Or are they not going to go to the Olympics? And our rule was, well, we first have to make the team to say we're not going to go. You know, we can sit here and say, oh, no, we're not going to go. We're going to boycott. But if you're not on the team, you can't do it. So it was always, when we make the team, talk to us. And uh, it finally, you know, but even once we made the team, they didn't talk to us either. So, but basically, it's, it goes back to human rights. And um, we all have them. And women, black women, women, all colors were not getting what they deserve. We, you know, we couldn't do certain things. You couldn't be, participate in sports. They were not in, in the colleges. They didn't have this. They didn't offer these things. So it was all about that. It was, again, most people think of it, it was just all about black power. In my mind, and, and all the people now that they have heard a lot about what went on in 68, they know now that it was about human rights, and not just human rights on the athletic field, human rights all over, whether you could go in, you know, in Mexico City, when we were there, it was a student uprising. They were doing all those things. It was all about that. It was what was going on in all the countries of the world and how we can unite and make it a better place for all of us to live, not just one group of people, but for all people. Mm. You heard that? <laughs> you heard it? And and, and John, if you could also give your, your own reflection about 1968, the moment on the medal stand, and your thoughts about the, the women athletes, and you've spoken to me about this, about how you felt the need for them to be included, not excluded, and what was happening. Well, you know, when you sit back and think about 68, you have to think about what was taking place in the United States at that particular time. Uh, we were on fire as a nation. I mean, when you sit back and you think about, you know, Dr. King was assassinated that year. Robert Kennedy was assassinated that year. They had the civil war unrest in Chicago that year. Uh, it was riots coast to coast in, in the United States at that particular year. So we had a tremendous amount of things taking place. Then when we went to Mexico City, it was an enormous amount of Mexican students and, and supporters of those students that lost their lives that most people here in the United States don't even know 48 years later. They don't know. They, they're talking about 150 people died. First it was 50 people. Now it's like 350 people. But in actuality, it was 2,000 plus people that lost their lives. They put them in the furnace, burned their bodies. When they couldn't put them on the furnace, they took the rest out, dumped them in the ocean. Then they told, turn the guns on the people that was left and told them to go up into the mountains and don't come down until the games start. And yet and still, when all the people got off the plane to go to Mexico City, they had the slums right in back of, of the airport. So opposed to them trying to clean up the slums and taking them people from eating out the gutter, feeding their kids out the gutter, instead they decided to put posters up of the Olympic Games to cover up the slums opposed to trying to clean up the slums. Wow. So when you Sounds saw, like the Super Bowl hosting yeah, here in the Bay Area. Absolutely, absolutely. I see how they moved those people off, off from the waterfront and put them out there under the bridge. Mm -hmm. So it's the, same, it's the same yeah. game. Uh, so when you sit back and you look at these things, it's a matter of saying to yourself, one more time for me, what can I do to make a positive statement that will ring around the world? So, you know, like I thought this unification in terms of us collectively coming together for an Olympic boycott might be the way to go. Because I thought to myself, wow, if we step back from the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War as black people, I wonder if America would have been that great in those wars. So then I said, if we step back from the Olympic Games, I wonder if we'll be missing the games and maybe they'll look at us from another perspective next time. But then when we tried to educate the athletes as to why we felt it was necessary to boycott, a lot of the athletes felt like that was a hard thing to swallow. 
something that I had been trained from the time I was that high off this ground where they hold a carrot in front of you and always teach you from the time you're a little kid, go for the gold, be Olympic champion. So everyone had that dream. I had that dream. Wyoming had a dream. Everybody has the dream to go to the Olympics. So we said, let's educate them. Let's try and sit them down and make them wise necessary to boycott the Olympic Games. And when it all came down, individuals started saying, man, you know, I trained all my life to go and win a medal. I promised my church I was going to bring the medal home. My kids and my wife, they're counting on me to bring that medal home. When they start giving stories like that, we didn't have no right to tell those individuals that, hey, man, you have to boycott the games. So we took a vote. Denver, Colorado, and we just said, are we going to boycott the games or are we going to go to the games? What's the vote? Well, the vote came that they wanted to go to the games. I thought right away, well, they can go. I'm not going. But God is a heavy dude because God touched my brain and told me, said, you know, Johnny, if you stay home, what you accomplishing by staying home? Because America is the greatest nation on the earth at that particular time in track and field. You stay home, somebody gonna go and win that medal or get in your place. The question is, when they get on the victory stand, will they represent you the way you feel you should be represented? Then it was imperative that I go. And to be sure that I went, because they, they played political games, because I should have been the gold medal winning 100 meters, my belief, but they chinook me because of my political views. They wouldn't even let me run the 100 meters in the trials. But I can live with that. Because it ain't about me winning for me, it's me winning for them. If they choose they don't want me to run and win for them, so be it, no problem. But as time went on, I said, I have to go to the games, and I started preparing myself. And when I did, I broke all the world records to go. Then they came back and told me, well, you're not going to get credit for the world record because obviously the shoes I had on had motors in them, or either they had a dog chasing a cat and a cat chasing the mouse to give me more traction. I don't know what it was. But they didn't give me the world records that I set. But it wasn't about world records. I needed to approach the victory stand to make a statement that will revolutionize the minds of many people on the planet. And I think in time, it's starting to turn the corner. A lot of people with fear had a fear factor because the press said it was a militant act. And when you heard about militancy back in the 60s, you think, and particularly white folks think, oh, they're trying to overthrow the government. Oh, they're trying to destroy the Statue of Liberty. Oh, they're trying to poison our water, which was so far from the truth. But remember when the right-wing press says something, they put a twist on it to intimidate you. In mm. word, you sit back and think about from 1968 to present day, most people in the United States think they took John Collins's medal away or they took Tommy Smith's medal away. Lies, propaganda, falsities. They came and told the world that they took our medals away. They came to me right after the demonstration. Stop, Mr. Smith and I at the Hotel Diplomatic, where all the Olympic officials were staying, they was upset because we stay in the same hotel. <laughs> we come downstairs in the lobby and elevator, I hear him saying in Spanish, they're going to take our medals away and they're going to run us out the country. Well, I was glad because I had my visa in my back pocket. <laughs> when I got downstairs, all the pressure swooped on us. One of them said, oh, I understand that they say that they're going to take your medal and run you out the country. I looked at Tommy, Tommy looked at me. I said, let me speak to you. I said, I don't know about Mr. Smith, but let me tell you about John Collins. I said, the medal has no significant value to me. I said, but let me tell you this. You didn't come to my house and knock on my door and tell me, say, hey, John, we got an open slot, man. We want to put you on the team. They told me it was an Olympic trials, and I had to meet a standard to make the trials. Then when I got to the trials, there wasn't no gift. I had to go through the process of elimination to get there on the team. I made the team. I went through the process, went to Mexico City. They didn't say one more time, John, it's the opening. Step up there and receive this medal. I had to go one more time through the process of elimination through the world to get there. So I told him, I said, if you feel that you want this medal and it doesn't really mean anything to me, bring the militia because you're going to need them to get this one back. Why? 
Because as I state, the medal don't mean anything to me, but it might mean everything to my kids. That's their medal. So then they backed away, but they lied for 48 years and told all young athletes from that point on. You ever seen a horse and buggy for you older guys that's in there? <laughs> you ever seen that horse and buggy used to pull a, pull a produce stand or, or pull a little ice cart? And you, you people focus on the produce stand and, and, and the ice cart. I didn't focus on them. I used to focus on the horse. And when I looked at that horse, what did I notice about the horse? They had put some blinders on his side. So the horse couldn't look to the left and say, oh, it looks good over there. Let me go that way. Or let me go to the right. Well, that's what they did with young athletes by telling them that they took our medals away. In other words, don't think outside the box because if you do what we did to Tommy Smith and John Collins, we're going to do to you. Mm. Well, I didn't go for the carrot when I was a little boy to think that it was all about the medals. It's about life. It's about having the freedom to be who you are. It's about saying, let me enjoy my life. Let me enjoy this ride that I'm on. I could never go to a track meet anytime I ran track and be so rigid that I'm so rigid, focused on track and field, that I couldn't be me. I'm always be me. Mm. So they got used to me after a while. They didn't want me in the Hall of Fame. Guys went in the Hall of Fame 30 years before me. They couldn't carry my shoes. But I ain't never raised no cane about that because their Hall of Fame, that's they lost when they keep me out. So eventually I come in, San Jose State, Chuck, just recently. Other guys went in San Jose City Hall. They went in their Hall of Fame 30 years ago. Tommy Smith, uh, Lee Evans, why didn't John Collins go in there? Because I'm not having no fear about speaking my mind about the issues that we deal with in society. As I told the students in the class today, I'm going to tell each and every one of y'all in this audience right now. I was at a crossroads in my life when I went to Mexico City. Every one of you are going to be at the crossroads of your life before you leave here as well. The question is whether you have the gumption in you, the stamina in you, the will to do the right thing. Regardless of how many people telling you, man, you're going the wrong way, you should be swimming downhill, not uphill. You can't pay attention to that. Because the life that you live in is not for you. You just happen to be here filling the gap. But when you think about it, a lot of people sit back and say, oh, Johnny was born June 5th, 1945. That's a day to celebrate. And then the other day, oh, Johnny died such and such a day. Oh, that's a day to be sorry. Well, the day I was born is not relevant. The day I die is not relevant. But what's relevant is what I did between those two days. And that stands the same thing in your life. What are you doing with your life? So I got to about <laughs> half my questions. Um, and I do want there to be time for folks to ask questions. But I would be so remiss if I didn't ask one last question for you both to answer. And the question is this. And start with you, Ms. Tyus. Back in 1968, when you were doing your thing, both in terms of your athletic ability and your political voice, did you ever imagine that 48 years later, we'd be discussing your life at an event sponsored by an academic center that takes inspiration from your actions? No, that was never, <laughs> never, never, ever. I, you know, you. When you're going through things and you're doing this, you're not thinking about what's going to happen, how it's going to play out. You're thinking about, this is what's happening now. This is where my voice needs to be heard. This is where I need to be saying and doing the things that's going to make what I feel in me the right thing to do. And hopefully, in doing the right thing, it will also inspire other people, not just women, but other people, all people, to do what they feel in their heart and they know in their heart that could help everybody. And not just my little world, not my little community, but the world in itself. And it's so, I never would have thought about anything like this and I'm just very pleased and honored to even be here tonight to be able to share a part of my story and a part of the Tiger Bell story. There's so much more to be shared and hopefully, along with Dave and I, we are going to get that shared that people can not only 
know what I have done, but what other women have done that were Tiger Bells, and maybe even women that are not Tiger Bells that have really contributed to this world of ours. Mm. You see, this is why I got a message on Twitter about an hour ago from Kerry Washington saying, please tell Wyoming Atias I love you and thank you. So th that's why. And, um, and same question to you, John. And it better just not be yes. But I, was you imagine say, I was just getting ready to say diddle. <laughs> diddle. I mean, because uh, she hit it on the head. You know, you, you don't go to, to make a statement. You just do what you're supposed to do. And if you do it and do it right, it's there. And people are going to pick it up. If they don't pick it up that day, it's done. It's documented. They will pick it up another day. 48 years, people are still picking it up every day. Kids look at that image. They wasn't even born. 40 years ago, they wasn't even thought of. They wasn't thought to their mother and father because they was kids. But then when you sit back and see a kid see this picture in his textbook in school and he turn the page, the first thing he do if he pass the page, he got to turn it back. Why is he turning it back? Because this is extraordinary. This is unusual. I've never seen anything like this. And my students used to come to me at school and say, uh, Mr. Carlos, I, you know, I saw this, this picture in my textbook, and I'm checking it out, and I see your name down there. <laughs> and the other guy talking about, man, that ain't Mr. Carlos. Mr. Carlos, old man, that, 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 that's not him. <laughs> and I look at the kids, and I tell them, I say, I'll tell you what you do. Uh, why don't you go and do some research on it, and then come back and we'll discuss it. And then the first thing the kids tell me, when we get back, they said, Ms. Collins, why is it that they have this picture here of you? And they got two or three lines under the picture, but they had no text in there about what this is about. Mm. So it shows you that the powers to be, they're struck by that motion too. See, so it's, it's about coming out of the box sometime to make a statement. And once the statement is made, they can't take it back. It's just like if I told everybody in this audience, say, I love you, like I come out throwing kisses. And somebody stand up and say, I don't want your love. Well, that's too damn bad, because I done gave it to you. <laughs> now, now, the best thing you can do is take that love and give it to somebody else. Because that's the problem that we have in society in terms of trying to deal with racism and, 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 and bias and prejudice, is the fact that they took love and knocked it up and locked it up and put it in prison and don't want people to acknowledge one another with love and sharing love and having understanding of love. If we had that, then we can get down. I'm not pissed off at the KKK. I say, but I'm disappointed in the KKK because they're so narrow-minded that they can't sit down at the table and have some dialogue about why they feel the way they feel. And until we get to the table and start having dialogue, until we get there, you sit back and say, why is the president of the United States, the first black president of this nation, nobody in this audience, black, white, or what have you, can tell me that he's the most disrespected president in the history of the presidency. And I don't think any president on record has had to tackle what he had to tackle. They got haters on the Republican side. They even got haters in the House on the Democratic side. But I've never seen him crack. I've never seen him whimper. I've never seen him lose his cool. And I always see him drive. And that's the same drive that I had in Mexico City. And God let me know that the stamina that he has, he drew something from me. And I thank you. All right. <laughs> Round of applause, please, for Wyoming Atias and Dr. John Carlos. Wow, thank you, Wyoming Atias. Thank you, John Carlos. That's the first time they've ever been on stage together. So guess what, everybody? You just heard a little piece of history. Elsewhere on the Panoply Network, just so folks know, SI's media columnist Richard Deitch is interviewing Gab Marcotti, one of the top soccer writers on earth. He writes for the Times of London and ESPN. You got to hear this conversation. Find the SI Media Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SI.com slash podcasts. 
Uh, now we do the part of the show where I do a column read, where I go off on something I wrote at thenation.com. And this week, and I think this is very appropriate given that we were just talking about 1968, I want to speak about Muhammad Ali, the champ, and his relationship to the Black Panther Party. If you want to read along, the link to this column is available in the description of this podcast. So for those of you who might have missed it, there was just a new documentary that was on PBS done by Stanley Nelson, and it's called Vanguard to the Revolution. It's a bracing examination of the history and politics of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Given that we're living in a time where the issues that really animated the Panthers, which were racist police brutality and economic injustice, given that these issues still resonate, and given that new movements out there are trying to find their voice, this film could really not be more timely. The documentary, though, also made me consider the ways in which boxer Muhammad Ali played a role in the inspiration and even very existence of the Black Panther Party. Now, this is a hidden history, and I want to share it with you guys today, because in many respects, this history is hidden not only by the corporate powers that be that have turned Muhammad Ali into this harmless icon, but also by a lot of folks who are around the Panthers themselves and want their organization to be seen as politically serious, which means any intersection with sports is something that tends to be denied. I'll never forget a conversation I had with uh, political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was a one-time Panther, and this is what Mumia said to me in an interview. He said, as someone who grew up very young in the party, I didn't form a lot of the idolatries that many of my age mates did. At 14 and 15, I wasn't fantasizing about being a member of the NBA or the NFL. I was a member of the Black Panthers, and that was enough for me. Yet in the very next moment, Mumia said to me, but if there ever was a sports hero to us, it was Muhammad Ali. Now, because Ali had been speaking out against racism, war, and the mainstream civil rights movement for several years before the Panthers formed, Ali had a singular resonance. His triumphs in the ring were themselves political acts. But Ali had an effect on the Panthers that rippled well beyond his wicked grace in the ring. In 1965, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, in Lones County, Alabama, launched an independent political party and became the first group to use the symbol of a Black Panther. Their graphic was a black silhouette of a Panther with the slogan, Straight from the Champ. It said, We are the greatest. They took the famous phrase, I am the greatest, and made it a collective call to arms. In addition, Panther co-founder Huey Newton said that he became politicized and inspired to start the Panthers by watching Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali give speeches. He loved it, but it left him wanting more because he, quote, had enough of religion, end quote, and later wrote, quote, references to God or Allah did not satisfy my stubborn thirst for answers, end quote. As for Muhammad Ali, he was not only aware of the Panthers, he saw what they were doing as a critical contribution to the black freedom struggle. In a 1970 interview for a publication called The Black Scholar, Ali said, Go on and join something bad. If it isn't the Muslims, at least join the Black Panthers. There are photos of Ali walking with the Panthers online and a clip of Ali speaking at a rally in support of the Panthers in San Francisco. Now, Mumia Abu-Jamal also said to me that the only time a picture of an athlete made their newspaper the Black Panther was when Ali lost to Joe Frazier in the 1971 fight of the century, and they put Ali's face up there under the heading, The People's Champ. The linking of Ali and the Panthers was also seen in the minds of rebel black soldiers fighting America's war in Vietnam. In 1970, journalist Wallace Terry did this field study in Southeast Asia and asked black and white soldiers who their heroes were. The heroes of black soldiers were primarily Muhammad Ali and Black Panther Stokely Carmichael all because they were seen as symbols of opposition to the bloody conflict. Now, stories like this remind us that Muhammad Ali was not the harmless civil rights saint that he is often portrayed as. They also remind us why it is that Ali's radical teeth have been extracted and why the Panthers, as Stanley Nelson showed so searingly, were subject to vicious state repression. It wasn't because of berets or charisma. It was because they inspired masses of people to revolt. They inspired people to put down their guns in Vietnam, or even more scarily, 
turn their guns around. That was Ali. That was the Panthers. And given the plague of problems we face today, that is why Stanley Nelson did such a service by keeping the raw revolutionary memory of this organization alive. And anybody who wants to see the film, go to the description of the podcast because we have a link to it where people can see it stream online. The champ is here! Now the Just Stand Up Award this week, which is less of a shout out than a call to arms. I made my first trip this last week to Lawrence, Kansas, but traveling to the land of Rock Chalk Jayhawk was actually less of a trip than a pilgrimage because Kansas is part of the Mount Rushmore of college basketball history, along with North Carolina, Kentucky, and UCLA. Hell with Duke. They ain't getting up there. Now, there's something else about Kansas which I witnessed firsthand. In touring the Allen Athletic Center and speaking at both a class on race and sports as well as a sports symposium, I saw something that I've never seen at other big state basketball schools. Utter engagement of the athletes with the academic world and campus life. I'm cynical about college sports, and this cynicism is well-earned. Amateur athletics in this country is a cesspool of exploitation, and the NCAA lords over this flaming trash heap like an old man with a sawed-off shotgun in a rocking chair. That man in the rocking chair, its $2 million a year man, is President Mark Emmert. He's the guy who runs this multi-billion dollar cartel with no sense of morality or higher purpose. Far too many schools reflect this absence of a sense of moral mission beyond winning games and securing ever more lucrative contracts for their coaches. I've seen and heard too many stories of so-called student-athletes on a conveyor belt, with no one having any kind of interest in their future beyond what they can do to put the rock in the hole come March Madness. But then I saw Kansas. The class I witnessed had basketball and football players fully engaged with the rest of the students, their books as dog-eared as anyone else. The evening keynote address that I did was from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., Practice ended at 6 p.m. for the men's basketball team, and every member of the team was in their seats along with 500 other people by 6.15. Keep in mind, this is at the time the Jayhawks are the number two basketball team in the country, getting ready for March Madness, and yet there they were to hear a lecture about race and sports with 500 people from the Lawrence community. Professors with whom I spoke told me stories very matter-of-factly about the academic work of several Jayhawks now in the NBA, Jayhawks who are continuing to try to earn their degree even if they left the school just after their freshman year. Now, I know schools where the NBA-caliber players don't even know their teachers when they're at school, and the teachers could care less about these players other than making sure they have a C or a pass that allows them to get on the court. But here I was able to walk through the Athletic Academic Center and saw serious engagement across the board. I also met several former players like Aaron Miles and former Big 12 Player of the Year Wayne Simeon who've returned to Lawrence to live. That's how close they feel to the community that exists there. That's how much they want to help build that community up in the years to come. Now, professors with whom I spoke, even those who, like me, think we should just burn the NCAA to the ground and pay the damn players like the employees that they are— We're proud of what their school has been able to do and have an ethical direction in what is a very amoral landscape. And they should be proud. But with all respect, that's also not enough. As the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Spider-Man. And Kansas has a responsibility to not only feel content about what they're doing in Lawrence, but to challenge the NCAA to fundamentally reform. They are one of only a few programs in the country with the cultural capital to push the needle on that kind of change. In the name of the great legacy of Kansas players and coaches, like Dr. James Naismith, Dean Smith, Lynette Woodard, Danny Manning, and Wilt Chamberlain, they need to lead a rebellion to get so-called student-athletes a seat at the table so the system can be fixed so everyone benefits, not just the cartel known as the NCAA. That's real leadership, and other than Kansas, I'd be hard-pressed to think of any major institution that is fit to lead. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to Edge of Sports, the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports or send us an email, edgeofsports at slate.com. Trust me, we read every one. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Last week, we had a tremendous conversation with a living tennis legend, Martina Navratilova. So be sure to go back and hear that show if you missed it. Edge of Sports is produced by Dan Bloom for the Panoply Network. Our intern is Dustin Foote. Also, give it up again for Rita Liberti, who made this happen. Um, Big shout out and thank you to Rita Liberti at Cal State East Bay and the Center for Sports and Social Justice. Thank you, Wyomi Atias. Thank you, John Carlos. We are out of here. Peace. Peace. Peace.